Um, Jatin, good morning. Good, or morning. good afternoon. Sorry, it's uh, I'm, I'm yeah, I, I, we've just gone past midday. Um, so uh, <laughs> been a long day already. Um, so how are you, sir? Very well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good, good. And 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 obviously you have a lovely um, shojin background, uh, which can be, as I found on many occasions on Zoom, sometimes a bit misleading as to where you are. <laughs> I'm nowhere exotic, unfortunately. I'm just in my office uh, in central London. So um, uh, again, just post-COVID, as, as a team, we've all can come back into the office full time. I love it. And reference point, we're talking uh, towards the end of April 2022 for people listening. Uh, I always love to understand a bit more about come back into the office because, you know, I've heard of instances where people are now five days a week or have you taken that hybrid approach going forward? I, I know I'm going to be one of the bad guys here. I don't believe in hybrid. I mean, look, I don't uh, mind people working from home. I know it's bad, right? No, look, when you're a young business and you're growing, you need ideas to flow around the room. You need to overhear what's going on in different parts of the business. So I was I was very uh, clear on this very early on. I wanted everybody back in the office. You know, I, I appreciate from time to time people like to work from home. You know, if you need to focus on something, it's great. And in fact, when lockdown first happened, our productivity probably shot up because you weren't getting interrupted every every two minutes. But actually, over time, I think you lose a, a, a lot of momentum and you lose that that team spirit, and especially when you're hiring new people. So, no, I'm I'm uh, I think it's just me and uh, uh, the I forgot his name now, the chap from Goldman Sachs who was saying. Uh, want everyone to be back in the office so uh, the, the ceo yeah is yeah. it that's the that's the, also the dj isn't it i think isn't he a like international world i think he's a DJ, dj first and then he's the ceo second oh no 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 i think it's completely the other way around and he and <laughs> i'm not sure and he's charging similar fees to what goldman sachs charge on transactions to play at various <laughs> events in ibiza and around the world i've heard on my DJing grapevine. Um, I won't go into my DJ <laughs> past because it will be a long and boring story. Um, but look, um, so you mentioned 15 years ago. Um, was that the uh, the birth of Shojin? Or, you know, I, I suppose as for context, you know, had you worked in this type of area before and noticed massive gap? Oh, I'm going to create Shojin. It, it, it kind of evolved like a lot of businesses do. It kind of took on a life of its own. But, you know, in terms of background, I, I spent about 12 years at UBS uh, Investment Bank. Mm. And uh, during that time, uh, again, it's it's very much like a an Indian approach to managing money, which is you don't spend your, your salary on flashy cars and flashy clothes. You invest the money and you invest it in real estate. So I was brought up with that idea. So from, from day one, pretty much, uh, when I started working at UBS, I was looking at how to invest money, how to buy rental property uh, in London. So over the years, I built up quite a nice portfolio, as did my co-founder. And uh, it wasn't long, really, before we were generating a very, very good passive income stream on the side. And this is while I was working in investment banking full time. So obviously, um, a lot of people were taking notice of this and, and wondering how on earth I was able to do that. And you kind of explain it's not really that hard. You're just going to sacrifice, you know, instead of watching TV for two hours at night, you've got to sit down and do something a bit more productive. But um, a lot of people didn't have 
the well supposedly didn't have the time nor inclination to actually do it for themselves and we kept getting asked if they could simply give us their money and you know they could invest it alongside us and that's really what sparked the birth of shojin and that's when we really kind of started taking investor money investing it alongside what we were doing in uh, rental property like high yielding rental property and then later into uh, residential development property as well I think they they really liked what we did and how we did it because my my co-founder had a, a construction background and I had obviously a finance background we could almost bring the two disciplines together and I could mm-hmm. distill everything down for investors to understand uh, and then it was all relationship driven so they just started telling other people and we kept getting introduced to more and more people so we kind of organically started growing okay and if you were to roll the clock forward to now um t- telling us a bit more about I suppose the tech, the team, the 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 ambitions. Um, let, let's let's take those three first because I don't want to overload the question. <laughs> yeah, fine. So so I mean, almost the, there's an in between thing that happened, which which was really interesting. So after after we started investing people's money alongside ours in in uh, rental property and then kind of small development projects, uh, and then we started doing our our own larger projects we almost accidentally discovered a massive gap in the market that's pretty much developed what the business is today. And that massive gap in the market, it's something that uh, entrepreneurs have known about since time began, which is when you start a business, uh, you know, you start off with your own cash. Uh, if you lack the, the cash you need, you reach out to friends and family. But as you start growing and you get bigger, it's harder and harder to reach out to friends and family. You've outgrown them but it's, you're too small for the, 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 the bigger institutions. So it's almost easier to raise 20 million than it is to raise 2 million. So, you know, the classic funding gap in the middle. And developers are no different. When they start off, they might do a very small project, you know, convert a house into four flats or something. But as they start doing larger projects, you know, the, the, the equity that they need, uh, you know, becomes too big for their own network. So imagine a developer who moves on, you know, after a few projects is doing a project with a cost of 10 million pounds. Um, the bank might give them six and a half million pounds, but the developer still has to put in three and a half million pounds. And it, again, it's a common misconception uh, that, well, why doesn't the developer have three and a half million pounds? Any sensible business person does not sit on loads of cash. They're always deploying cash into various projects. So the reality is most developers won't have that cash or they haven't got that much cash because they haven't quite hit that size of deal yet. So, so what was happening, what we found in the market was the middle market projects were way more profitable than smaller projects and larger projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and by middle market, I mean projects with a cost of, say, 10 to about 50, 60 million pounds. Remember, the bank will always give you about 65 percent. It's the it's the balance that the developer needs to put in. So because they they struggle to get funding, there's less developers in that space. Because there's less developers, the land values are much more uh, reasonable and the margins, the profit margins are much bigger, but they can't get access to capital. So then doing what we were doing, and remember this is just with a closed network at the moment, we started talking to other developers and we said, look, it's a great project that you're doing, bring it to us, we'll run through it. If, If it actually fits all of our criteria, will plug the funding gap. So if, if it's a 10 million pound project and the bank gives you six and a half million pounds and uh, Mr. or Miss developer, you know, only has, you know, half a million or a million pounds, mm. we'll plug the gap. And what we found was 
developers were very, very happy to share the huge upside that they were getting in the project. So, so you know, it became a win-win. We could generate high returning investments for our investors without actually doing any construction ourselves because that's a colossal pain. We could do the funding, oversee the project from start to end, make sure everything's on track. We can step in if something goes wrong, but ultimately, you know, it's we're, we're just investing the money, the money comes back, investors get a great return. And then to make sure that everyone was aligned, we would effectively take our profit share at the end as well. So mm. it's just as important for the project to finish for us to make our money as it is for investors to make money, which I thought was a better model for the fund management industry, because it's almost if the project doesn't go well, we make nothing. So we're fully incentivized. So you're not you're not taking the evil management fees up front and that that kind of okay that's good no well i mean you know look when i was in ubs and and i had my my pension plans and everything there it used to drive me bananas i'd look at the statement and um it, the returns were always abysmal and I, even when the market's going up the returns were rubbish and and you you kind of look through it and you realize there's layers and layers of fees and people managing this and that and by the time it all comes back to you there's nothing left but I know that the fund manager is driving uh, probably a nice Ferrari somewhere. So, you know, it, it really irked me. So, so I, you know, when we created our own model, we always said, look, we've got to be 100% aligned with investors. We don't eat until the investor eats. So that's what really got us into, into this funding space, if you like, this whole middle market. So coming back to your question then, you know, what then happened was very simply we thought, hang about. We're talking to a bunch of investors through our own networks. Actually, a lot more people could be interested in this. Um, and so we went off uh, and it took two years. We went off and got an FCA license in the UK. We went and built the technology. And then we finally launched it as an online investment platform. And that served two purposes. One, it meant we could have a global reach, which means investors from anywhere in the world could invest, not just people we knew. And secondly, because we were using technology, the administrative burden suddenly kind of disappeared. And we didn't care whether there was, you know, five investors or 50 investors in a project, which meant that we could drop the minimum investment, which previously was, you know, 100 to 200,000 pounds per transaction. We could drop it all the way down to 5,000 pounds. And our goal is obviously to drop it even further. And so um, with plugging that, that funding gap, what kind of form of um, assistance did that come in? Was it, is it just pure equity or is it a mixture of debt and equity or what does that kind of look like? So, so this is, this is where my, my uh, many years in finance comes in really handy. So, you know, it started off as very simple equity, you know, uh, in, take that 10 million pound example. Um, it started off by saying, okay, six and a half is coming from the bank. You need three and a half million pounds. Mr. Developer's got 1 million. We'll give you the balance and we'll just split the profits 50, 50. But then as things evolved, I thought, oh, actually, you could use a bit of financial engineering in this to actually engineer uh, an optimal stack for the developer so that it costs the developer less money while actually giving investors a better return based on their risk preferences. So we started slicing up the junior funding into things like mezzanine uh, and preferred equity so that different investors could get different returns based on different risk profiles. Right. Um, and 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 even even you know, you which know, is better when, for both sides, right? For investors that brilliant. are specialized or have their uh, preferences, 
but then like you said for the for the developers they can also attain yeah. that mix to get a better um, cost of uh, of yeah, because I mean, you know, if you think about it, the, the, the reason this market is insanely profitable is because it's just ridiculously inefficient. And, and, you know, it's always been our long term goal. We use the inefficiency to generate great returns for investors. But we don't just want to milk the developers for everything they've got, you know, or, you know, all the profits in the project, we want to optimize things on the developer side as well. So by creating this tranche structure, you actually be able to give the developer cheaper funding, because actually, if you think about it, in that six and a half million pound example, um, if you imagine the next million pounds isn't as risky as the next million pounds after that. So you know, by, by, by structuring it that way and having different rates at different points, the developer actually overall ends up saving a lot of money, which is, so it's, it's a win-win. And mid-market as well, just for people that don't know, is that purely residential? It's a mix. Do you guys have any sort of preference? I mean, we're, we're, we're you know, historically we're very residential focused. I mean, that's, that's what we've always known and, and done. Um, but but we also look at things that are kind of quasi-residential. So, you know, uh, purpose-built student accommodation, rental schemes, um, co-living, retirement living, uh, and more recently, hotels. Um, it's not that we wouldn't look at other commercial areas. It's just that there's so much going on in residential space. Uh, you know, we almost don't have the time to look elsewhere. <laughs> Um, and, uh, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, the UK has a severe shortage of residential housing. So for the for now, there's ample opportunity in this space. And then I suppose the natural next area is, is this a, a market that's exploding at the moment that, you know, clearly, if we look five years out, we're going to be like, triple x where we are at the moment what's what's the view there um, i mean it's no cryptocurrency let's let's start with that because that's almost at one extreme we you know we're still dealing with what is effectively a traditional asset and and i can talk about how we've looked at security tokenization and stuff later but the fact is at the end of the day you've got what is a traditional asset class and it, all we've done is taken a traditional business and we've digitized it um, and fractionalized it to make it more accessible to everyone. But if you want the answer, the specific answer to that question, it's actually expected to grow by about 50 times over the next six years. Uh, it's expected to grow to a total, I mean, I think today, uh, oh, the numbers popped out of my head, but it, it's going to be growing up to about 800 billion uh, online investment in real estate by 2028. So, you know, it, it is it is going through very, very rapid growth. Mm. Um, but what I quite like about it... I think it, it's, it's around 15 billion at the moment from the research it, but, yeah. I did. Yeah, so that's that's massive. That's not just... Massive. Yeah. You know, it's not Bitcoin massive, massive though. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I understand, you know, all NFT massive. But... Look at the makeup of revenues in the business, see more growth international or... UK equal or you know it, it, it's always interesting for listeners to find out how to internationalize businesses yeah I mean I mean look one one thing I would say and and this absolutely hands down I think I think the UK has a huge advantage in terms of you know we've got great regulators well respected all of that kind of stuff but 
from a business perspective, the future is Asia, they, without a shadow of a doubt. And, in, you know, partly just the sheer number of people there uh, and in the right demographic, um, but also, you know, their embracing of technology as well. Um, I mean, we've seen super fast growth out in Asia. And I would say today, almost 50% of our investors are from Asia. Um, I suppose well, I'm being really nosy here, actually, Jatin, because I think, you know, we, we have a variety of founders, usually scale-ups, usually people who've had successful stories, maybe even exits or exits from previous businesses. If you were to sort of say where you are at the moment in terms of the business the scale, the revenues, you know, the, I mean, are you doing a series A? What, what's the sort of schematic? Where, where are you in the journey? Okay, so, so you, know, you know the classic picture of where the, the business kind of goes up, then it comes down a bit, and then it goes up, and then you've got your kind of hockey stick growth. We're on that second. Is that the S-curve? Yeah, we're on that upswing right now. So we, we, we did our growing too quickly a few years ago. And then scaling back because we realized actually our infrastructure, you know, the operations weren't quite ready to scale. We focused on that. We're now scaling very, very rapidly um, to put that into context and, and provide some, some numbers around it. Um, we are we are currently raising our Series A. Uh, we've already raised three million. We set out to raise 10 million, but half of that was going to be for underwriting capital, for underwriting our deals. But we've now been offered all the underwriting capital from a family office. So We'll continue raising, but maybe only a couple of million more. It's more about getting strategic investors in. Um, and, and I like the idea of having lots and lots of investors because every investor becomes an ambassador for the business. So hence, we will continue raising our Series A with investors putting in, say, £10,000 and then some people putting in larger chunks like £200,000 but then they've got some sort of more strategic involvement as well, like maybe introducing us into various networks or countries as well. But putting uh, putting some numbers on in terms of where we are as well, we're probably one of the only fintechs in London to actually be profitable for the last two years and to be profitable again this year. So uh, we've had revenues of, um, I think, uh, Two years ago, revenues of just under 2 million. Last year, I think it's about 1.3 million. Our, our year runs to June, by the way, so I should, should say that. And then by this June, we're back up to 2 million revenue again. So we are very much, you know, we've proven the model. We're now scaling up in terms of number of investors. We're scaling up in terms of how many projects we take on. And there's another stat, which I think is really interesting from a company perspective. Simply, and again, I, I don't want to suggest this is because we're particularly clever, but we're in a part of the market that's completely inefficient, which means it's a hell of a lot more profitable. We pass that profit on to investors. But from a company perspective, for every million pounds that we raise through the platform, we generate revenues of 150 to 200,000 pounds, albeit it's back-ended. But it goes to show how profitable this part of the market is. And that's why we are profitable. And that's why we've got such strong revenues. That's, that's impressive, impressive numbers. Um, and then, you know, we often talk about ESG, which I suppose in the case of Shojin is levelling up uh, that type, type of um, approach. Do, do, you, do you have a strong core ESG 
dynamic in the business? And if, if so, what, what, what's it look like? Yeah, I mean, I mean, look, from multiple perspectives, yes. Um, and, and let me let me answer that question, but just by going back a little bit. My view on business generally is, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago, you had all these kind of mega entrepreneurs who made a hell of a lot of money by trampling over a hell of a lot of other people. Now, Bill Gates, as much as he's giving away a hell of a lot of money right now, he has obliterated entrepreneurs on his journey. I just I don't I don't see why that should be the way it's done. My view is that actually you need to work collaboratively with everyone. There's plenty of money to go around. We can all be successful and we can work together, which is part of the reason why I love working in in partnerships and joint ventures and collaborate uh, collaboration. So 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 that's part of it. it. It's working with other entrepreneurs who themselves will effectively work doubly hard because they actually own their piece of the business, if you like. So even within the company, everybody owns a piece of the business. I don't need to be the richest uh, man in the cemetery or, or you know, in, in, in wherever, you know, I, I fully, I, there's only so much money a man needs, right? I'm not extravagant. So let's just share it as we go. So that's the first thing. Let's share the wealth from a corporate level as we go. Let's work with other people who are also growing their businesses and we can help each other along the way. But secondly, the the core premise behind what we're doing, there are easier ways. Well, I'm just going to send you my job CV. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck it over. Come on, the more the merrier. <laughs> no, but 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 at, at the heart of what we do, um, you know, I, I've already said I'm not extravagant. I don't need that much money to survive. So actually, there's much easier ways for me to make a living. Same for all the guys here in the team. So why do this? This is so much hard work, what we're doing at Shojin. Why bother? It's because we there's something bigger we're trying to achieve, and that is that spread of wealth. I see absolutely no reason why wealth should be concentrated in the hands of a few. I'm no communist at all. I'm a social capitalist. I believe people should be rewarded for working hard, but everyone should have access to the same opportunities. In the past, the problem was, if you had tens of millions, you had access to investing in development projects, for example. But if you were earning 50 or 100,000 pounds a year, you didn't have access to those kind of opportunities, which were much more lucrative. The best you had access to was your bog standard investment funds through, I don't know, your AJ Bells or whatever. And, and again, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy, but what all of that stuff it does is it keeps everyone invested in the same stuff where the returns are pretty rubbish. Um, and they get no, they don't really get any wealthier. So, so if I put aside any kind of conspiracy theory, on the one hand, people are, are trying to almost be suppressed in terms of their wealth growth, while other people are given access to grow it massively. What we're doing is sitting in the middle and saying, you know what, we'll take some of that super wealthy stuff, break it down so that everyone can access it. So that's probably the biggest kind of ESG angle I can think of. Beyond that, of course, we've got you know, charities we support. And, and also we're looking at ways about how to incentivize uh, greener development, if you like. You know, uh, property is one of the, the number one polluters globally, both development and then living in property. So, so we are looking at a number of ways on how we can help uh, or do our part in mitigating uh, the, the, the kind of uh, uh, carbon emissions in that space. But the whole company is about ESG, ultimately. Okay. It's impressive. Um, I suppose, you know, if, if people are listening, watching, um, they like what they have heard, seen, um, how, how do they become part of Shojin? 
really easy. Just go online, register. That's it. It's it's uh, obviously we are FCA regulated. So when you register, you have to go through um, something called an appropriateness test to uh, test your level of understanding of risk. Mm-hmm. Again, not not wanting to have a rant, but I'll have a little one. You know, you have to go through a massive appropriateness test for investing in real estate projects on our platform. Yet most people can just walk into a casino and blow 10 grand on red black. They can go and buy Bitcoin or whatever other cryptocurrency. But obviously we're in a regulated Mm. space, so they've got to go through this appropriateness test. Okay, gotcha. All right. And then one last one for me, which is, I suppose, one that we, we often get when we're interacting with with vcs and funds and you know uh, in, maybe if we're advising a company here at not wix but it, it's that kind of benchmarking and it's always like oh you know if they're the only ones that's a worry because you know it's it's not you know there should be others and and who's or who's the big american frenemy that's eating the u.s market that they they they're they're not copying but you know so uh, the competitive dynamics what where are you in that that so so okay so so first of all and i'm glad you brought up the u.s right so the u.s just get what we do right they just get it and that's why our equivalent business in the u.s will be probably worth a hundred times more and they'll have loads more money thrown at them simply because in the u.s they get it you know for years uh, before when we were raising money here in the uk we kept getting asked the same question are you profitable and we weren't because we were putting all our money into growth so then we put all our effort into becoming profitable and we became profitable for like i said last two years and this year but now when we talk to investors from the u.s they're looking at us and, and saying you know why are you profitable? That means you're not growing fast enough. So you can't win. You really can't win. But but the fact is that the, the US is far more advanced than we are in terms of broader acceptance of or, or, or uh, sorry, acceptance of what we're doing. They have a very different risk profile, I think is is really the crux of the US versus UK perspective. UK investors want to make sure you have a stable business before they invest in the US. They're like, how fast and hard are they going to go, right? So, how, how unstable are you? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. The more unstable, the better, right? You know. But, but you know, it, it's it's a very different mindset. But, but I mean, look, that's okay. We're, we're, we're growing our business here. We are uh, very loosely kind of looking at, and we have spoken to some of our, our counterparts over there in the past as well. Um, and when they do move into the European market, the chances are they'll acquire anyway. So we'll probably end up merging or being acquired uh, by one of them in due course. But, in, you know, meanwhile, over here in the UK, you know, when people think online real estate investment, they think of three things. One, buying fractional investments in, in assets. Um and, uh, you know, a lot of people think about, you know, uh, buy a house and you sell 50 shares in that house, for example. Um, it's it's not really scalable, doesn't really work. People have tried and and found it costs them more to run the platform than they you know would ever make using that model. So we, we don't do it. We do it more by exception. If we get a really cracking deal on a big asset, not a small asset, then we might buy it. So we bought a 124 room student accommodation block a few years ago fantastic returns and the reason we got a great deal on it was because we'd funded the developer during construction and then the developer wanted to do another project which we also backed but as part of the deal we managed to uh, get him to sell us the uh, original building or at least 50 percent stake in the original building at a good price so you know 
it's finding the right opportunities and backing them. The second area people focus on is uh, first charge senior lending. Again, coming back to exactly what you just said, uh, Anthony, you know, that whole safe thing, you know, people here like safe, you know, like low risk. They like to hear words like first charge. The problem with the senior lending market in the UK is it's so well developed. And in the last uh, 15 years since the financial crisis, so much money has flooded into senior lending that returns have come right down. 15 years ago, you could do a bridge loan where a, a low risk bridge loan, say 55% loan to value, uh, you could charge 12% per year, 1% per month. Today, that same bridge loan, you, you can't charge more than about six, six and a half percent. So it shows how much the rates have come down. Meanwhile, mezzanine and equity returns have stayed where they were. So mezzanine was always, you know, 14 to 18. Equity was always 20 to 30. And they've stayed where they are. So what's happened is a lot of firms started off in the peer-to-peer -peer lending space and crowdfunding space offering senior lending, which investors loved because back, back in the day, they were getting 7 8% returns and the, the platform took the spread. But since wholesale rates have come right down, most of those platforms have turned to institutional funding. And why wouldn't they? It's cheaper, it's quicker, it's easier. They don't have to deal with thousands of smaller investors. So in my view, they've kind of sold out because the original vision was to open this to everyone. And they kind of sold out because, they're, I mean, if you take assets, lend, invest, you know, all of these kind of guys, they, they, they're institutional. I think funding circle doesn't even take uh, retail money anymore. So, so that's the second type. And, the, and then the third type is what we do, which is, junior funding, uh, you know, equity, mezzanine. And weirdly enough, there just isn't much competition. And the reason I think is it's a much more specialized area. Like you could take someone, uh, you know, in their sleep and they could do a, a bridge loan. You know, if you're, if you're lending 50 or 60% against the value of a property, that's the most easiest loan you're ever going to make. But actually, if you're backing a development project, there's two, three hundred other risk factors you've got to look at. And most of the senior lending guys who've thought about moving into the junior space actually abandoned it very quickly because it requires much more specialist knowledge um, and involvement, oversight and so on. But on the flip side, it's very, very profitable. So I think we've got another two to three year window while we've got the space, I, not completely to our space. There are some players, uh, but mostly our competition is family offices. So I think we've got another two or three years before other platforms really move into this space. Um, and by then, we'll have moved more into the kind of more international projects anyway. Mm, exciting. Um, fascinating. I mean, uh, I've really learned a lot um, on this uh, <laughs> podcast, uh, Justin. So thank you. Um, and uh, I mean, one thing that I, I suppose we always love to ask is, look, you've been there, you've built a business, you're still building a business, you've had the sort of headwinds thrown at you, you've navigated them, you know, for, for all those people out there that, you know, are reading the press and it's it's not as rosy in early stage as, as it was perhaps five, ten years ago to, to start a business and take the plunge. I mean, what, what would you be your I suppose your your biggest learning or learnings or piece of advice that you give to any aspiring founders um I think the, the the most important first thing I would say is it's never rosy it's just never rosy <laughs> doesn't matter how big your business grows it's almost 
I, I almost think that the role of a CEO, the owner of a business, is you, you never want a stable life because if things are stable and ticking along, it means, again, you're not growing, you're not pushing boundaries. So you'll, you'll find the next thing to push on and therefore make life stressful again for yourself. And, and, and I kind of think that the role of a CEO is, is it's problem solving. It's forever problem solving. So, so I think entrepreneurialism, for me at least, is the best thing I've ever done. I've loved every minute of it. But it has been super stressful, very long hours, very busy. You do have sleepless nights. You know, all of that stuff happens. And I think, I think what everybody sees is, you know, the people that write the books and all this stuff, you know, it, it, I, think, I think somebody said it best the other day. They said it's, it's a little bit like um, childbirth. You know, most women, I think, I think we're genetically, or women are genetically programmed to forget how bad childbirth was so that they have another baby. And, and it's a little bit like that with business people. They, they forget all the pain that they've gone through once they've gone through it. Um, and then they write a nice book and everything looks like, you know, it, it, it was great. But the reality is it's hard, but that's not to say you shouldn't do it. You should just know that it is it is not an easy journey. But if you're up for the challenge, it is the most rewarding journey.